0: You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us.
1: Good job, great job. Great job, guys. Thank you uh, so much for being with us. It's a privilege to get to have an outside uh, music, music team come in. That's kind of cool. Uh, have you ever... Um, sort of sat and thought about what life is all about. Uh, My friend, Chris Simmons, posted uh, this poem on her Facebook page this last week. And uh, this is the, uh, it's a a poem by Jack Handy, if you remember Jack Handy. Uh, It says, okay, we gotta kinda center ourselves here. I know that. It says, as the light changed from red to green to yellow And back to red again. I sat there thinking about life. Was it nothing more than a bunch of honking and yelling? Sometimes it seemed that way. Uh, That's a deep thought by Jack Handy. Uh, You know, lately uh, in our household, life has seemed like a lot of honking and yelling a little bit. Uh, It's just been a crazy summer. I don't know about you guys. Uh, But... uh, We've also gone through some difficult times in our in our ministry this summer, as we've lost uh, a couple dear friends. Uh, to many of us, losing Scott this summer, losing Rigo just a week ago, and um, you know, it, there's times like those that make you really, honestly think about life and what really matters in life. And uh, I know I don't know about you, but when I'm in times like that, when I'm at a memorial service or when I'm thinking about relationships, it, it brings me to that point of going, you know, that's really all that matters is the connections that we make. Uh, really, relationships are what life is really all about. And uh, Jesus was a, a man of relationship. God is a God of relationship. And in an amazing way, he was like us in that regard, in that he was not only relational, but Jesus was emotional. And uh, there's a, a famous passage in the Bible. It's, the mo- uh, it's famous for being the shortest. Uh, passage in the Bible in English language, and it's Jesus wept. Uh, John 11, verse 35, Jesus wept. That's one verse. Uh, it's easy one to memorize, you know, so if you ask the teens, hey, pick a verse to memorize, that's the one they always pick. Um, but but wh- what's, what's profound about that? We're going to kind of dig into that today. What, what does it mean that Jesus wept? Why did he weep? Uh, th- the first thought I have is just that he ...was willing to be emotional, and that, that is a staggering thought if you really think about uh, what that means and the ramifications of that. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people that grew up kind of afraid of my own emotions. And uh, I, I can distinctly remember being in band in junior high, and I don't even remember what the altercation was with this other kid. I, I think he was mocking me, or uh, there was some kind of thing going on, and I remember I was brought to tears... And, you know, there's nothing worse than to be crying in the middle of a junior high class as a, as a guy. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I just, that just brought on the mockery of everybody. And I was yeah, like, oh. I'm not looking for your sympathy. I'm trying to see if anybody relates. Uh, but it just reinforced, you just don't cry. You know, if you're a guy, you just don't cry. And, and, and it, you know, I, I, I was afraid. I don't want to be emotional in front of people. Can anybody relate to that? Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we fear vulnerability. And yet the amazing thing is, if some, sometimes we have testimonies shared up here. Sometimes we have people share their stories. How many of you, when someone does get emotional up front, it really ministers to you? Yeah, yeah and, and it doesn't make you have less of a view of them. It makes you have a, a deeper view of them that they were willing to really get real and really be vulnerable. So there's this kind of interesting relationship we have with vulnerability and with emotion. You know, we kind of like it, but we kind of hate it as well. You know, I hate it when a commercial gets me to cry. (laughs) Because I know, I know that's just the marketing team, you know? And they've got, you know, the, the, the guy, you know, like the one with the girl and she's little and then she's older and then she's, you know, she's going off to college. All those, oh, I just have to stop. I just turn away quickly. The worst is when it's a McDonald's commercial. Because it's like this is an organization that just sells cheap food, you know, and, and, and they're just getting me to cry. That's not right. Uh, we we uh, we had a leaders meeting years ago when Steve and Teresa Forrester were leading the ministry here. Some of you might remember that time uh, many years ago. Dust and I were kind of newly newlywed, and uh, we were serving in, in, as volunteer uh, leaders of the of the singles ministry at the time. We had this leaders meeting, and Steve and Teresa were really late, so we're all kind of standing around, going, you know, what are we going to do? Uh, you know, should we? Is, is it like like college where if the professor doesn't show up for 15 minutes, you get to leave? Or. Uh, <laughs> And so we're kind of... And then they come in like, like about 15, 20 minutes late and Steve's eyes are just puffy and red and Teresa, uh, all of her mascaras are just run all over her face and we're like, oh my gosh, what happened? Like some crisis, did somebody die? Did you have a huge fight? I mean, what's, what happened? And they come in and they said that we were in the car and this song, Butterfly Kisses, came on. <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and they had, a, you know, this little girl... And they just couldn't pull it back together <laughs> to come into the meeting. But all of, us, all of us can relate to that kind of relationship with our emotions, like, ah, I don't want to go there. I don't want to let myself be emotional. I don't want to let myself get vulnerable. And yet Jesus was willing to do that. Let's, let's look at the, uh, the actual passage. Turn over to John 11, if you would, in your Bible or on your phone. I'm going to say a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll jump into this. Let's pray. God, thank you. So much that we have Jesus to look to as a, just a, the, way, the way to see who you are, really, God, the way to see what it means to be like you. Thank you that we have him to look to. I pray we can all learn from his example today. I pray that you'd really speak to us through your word and uh, help our hearts to be open. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, John 11, it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village where Mary and Martha lived. This is the Mary whose brother Lazarus lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. It's interesting, you know, that where Jesus is right now is he's out past the Jordan, out in the desert where John the Baptist's ministry was. It says he loved Lazarus, so he stayed where he was two more days. Why did he not come right away? And commentators debate that. There's a lot of different theories about that. Basically, we don't know, but what we do know is sometimes God doesn't operate in the timing or the way that we want him to. And that's one thing I take from that, is you think God's going to do a certain thing, and he does it in a different way. He stays where he is two more days, but then he says, okay, now let's go. Now let's go to Judea, so back across the Jordan and into near the city. Uh, Bethany is about two miles from from the city. Uh, So they say, his guys in verse 8 say, But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Uh, what, what are they talking about? Well, if you, we don't have time to look there, but if you look in chapter 10, uh, they gather all, this huge crowd gathers around him there in Jerusalem, and they pick up stones, and they're going to kill him. And, and what stoning is, is the person would be in the center, and everybody would throw rocks at the person until they die. So they, they, they pick up rocks. They're going to kill him because they're so angry. And yet it says he escaped, and he, and he went out to where he is now. So now he's going, I'm going to go back there. And they're like, what? Why do you want to go back there? And it's interesting if you, if you read why they wanted to stone him in, in John 10, verse 33, a chapter earlier. I'll just read it to you. It says, We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. This is a side note, but, you know, there's a, a popular thing you hear right now is that Jesus was a good teacher. Nobody comes out and says they hate Jesus. I mean, everybody likes Jesus. But they want to say he was a good prophet, he was a good teacher, he was a humble man, he was... You know, his teachings are wonderful, but he was just a good teacher. And yet, when you look at Jesus' actual teachings, his actual claims, there is no doubt he claimed to be God. There is no other religious teacher that has ever claimed to be God and backed it up by raising from the dead. That said, you kill me and I'm going to raise from the dead. That's the sign. Jesus claimed to be God. That's why they wanted to kill him, it says, because they they thought he was blasphemous. Who is this man that's claiming to be God? And, uh, you know, everybody loves the saving Jesus, the Jesus that... Uh, for God so loved the world, he he sent his only son, John 3, right? Everybody memorizes that. We love that. And and we need that. We need salvation. And yet the very same passage, Jesus says, here's the verdict. Light, meaning himself, has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So the challenge to you today is get to know the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus. Not just the good teacher Jesus, but the, the, the being that claimed to be God in the flesh. Because that's what really changes your life. That's what really makes all the difference. So he, so he left Jerusalem. He goes back. Uh, I mean, he leaves the desert. He goes back. Verse uh, 9, where we left off. Jesus answered her, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. I I don't know what Thomas even meant there. Like, is he being sarcastic? Is he serious? You know, I, I think he probably was serious because all of them had this mentality. Yeah, we're going to conquer the world. We're going to do it. We're going to establish a new kingdom. You know, Peter said, I'm going to die with you. I'm willing to die with you. But then what happens? They all scattered. They all denied him. They all, you know, nobody was there for him when he was arrested. He's, he's going to, he says, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I feel like I'm about to die. I'm so sorrowful. Can you guys just keep watch with me? And they all fall asleep. You know, I don't know about you, but it kind of encourages me to read these stories of the disciples because that's me. I mean, I mess up. I, I intend well. I'm going to do it. I'm going I'm to be there for you, God. But then I mess up. And, and the great thing is that Jesus works with us in our weakness. You know, for the teenagers, uh, you know, we, Dustin and I have been working with the teens, a little bit working with the teen leaders. And there's this kind of common thing among the teens that, okay, i got to be absolutely perfect, and then I can become a Christian. You know, i got to be perfect so then I can follow Jesus. And the thing is, Jesus isn't looking for that. He's looking for your heart. He's looking for a commitment. He's looking for you to go, okay, I'm, I'm going to give my all. And then you're going to mess up. But that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need a Savior, because we mess up. But, but, but he wants our heart. Nobody goes into a marriage going, you know, well, I'm going to give you a little bit because that's all I can really give you. you no, know, you go, I'm giving you my all. I know I'm going to mess up, but I'm still giving you my all. And that's what Jesus is looking for. But anyway, they don't—they're not getting what Jesus is doing. They're like, if he sleeps, he'll get better. He's like, oh. okay, he died. All right. <laughs> Are you? So, at one point, Jesus says, "Are you so dull?" That's—that's that's, uh, kind of some of his interactions. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. I love what she does right there. She, she doesn't understand what he's talking about. But she goes, but I know what I believe. I know I believe that you are the Messiah. I know I believe that when I see you, I see God. I know I believe that you are the one who is to come into the world. I don't understand what you're saying right now. But I believe, yes. You know, her answer is yes. Even though she doesn't really understand. And, and I, I love that because I feel like all of us can relate to that. Because the fact is, we're never going to fully understand uh, what God is doing, how he's working, how the world works. We're not going to understand why there's sickness and death and its entirety. We're not going to understand why there's evil in the world. Why bad things happen, as we're going to talk about in a minute. There's a lot of things that we just can't understand. But what we can understand is who has the answers. And and there's a passage earlier in John 6 where everybody scatters. The people stop following Jesus because his teachings get difficult. His teachings get hard. And he turns to the 12 and he says, do you guys want to leave too? You don't want to leave too, do you? And and Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, there's nowhere else I can go. I know where the answers are. I don't understand it all the time. I don't know what the answers are, but I know you have them. And so I'm not going anywhere. Where else am I going to go? Who else has the answers? Do the atheists have the answers? I mean, they can pick apart our faith. They can pick apart some of the things. They can tear. It's easy to tear down. But what are they building? You know, if you really look, I've read some some of the writings of of some of these uh, the, the atheistic writers, Rich, Richard Dawkins and these guys. They love to tear things apart. But what do they offer? It's really sad because they offer nothing. And so. Jesus has the words of eternal life. He has what everyone is looking for. And I love that she, she returns to her foundational level of faith. I know what I know. And that is that you're, you're the Son of God. And all of us are going to have to go back to that at some point in your spiritual walk, if you haven't already. To, to what you confess at your baptism, Jesus is Lord. He, he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. That's what I need to know. And, and you've you got to return to that sometimes. Um, we added a new family member uh, in the last couple of weeks uh, Cora got a tortoise for her birthday, and, uh, you know, a little, little, like, uh, Big Mac-sized tortoise, you know, and um, he's really cute, he crawls around, he crawls around her living room, he crawls around our front, you know, garden, our, our back uh, yard, and, uh, you know, so we, we've introduced him to a lot of parts of our family, and lots of uh, areas of our house. Now, there is no way that the tortoise can ever understand what it fully means to be a craig you know there's no way the tortoise can ever understand you know what he has walked into and all that you know all of our, our family and our history because he just doesn't have the capacity for it he has a little tortoise pea brain and so that's the way we are with God I mean God is the creator of the universe how much bigger than me is he than me to the tortoise and so there, there's certain things I'm just never going to understand but it's got to be enough for me that God is the answer And that he is who I'm sticking with. Let's keep reading. It says, uh, verse 28. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went and met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb... And, and we, we don't have time to read the rest of the story. It's an amazing story that he raises Jesus, uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, even though he had been dead four days. You know, there's people that try to explain away some of, of uh, Jesus' miracles, like, oh, maybe the person wasn't really dead, they just needed to be resuscitated. Or they were just in a coma. And, and so he, he did mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, and he brought him back or something. I mean, here's a guy that is in the tomb for four days, and he stinks. And Jesus rose him from the dead, and the whole town was there to see it. In fact, this becomes the catalyst. This is the whole reason the the Jewish leaders go: We've got to kill this guy, because every they say everybody is following him. The whole town saw him do this miracle, and they decide we're not only going to kill him, we're going to kill Lazarus as well. And uh, and so the, the way the tomb works is it, it, it was a cave with a with a round stone like you see, and you know, Jesus was in, and there were slabs. There were eight slabs usually, six three on this side, three on this side, two in the back, and they would take a body, they would wrap it up and, and put spices, they would wrap the head and the, and the feet and the hands really well, and, and, and they would put spices in there and then leave it. And so they would wait for the body to completely decompose, then they would go back and take the bones and put it in a little box, a little stone box called an ossuary. And so there's tons of these ossuaries from the first century, that's, that's how they would keep their loved ones. So Lazarus has been put in there, they're basically just waiting for him to rot, Four days later, Jesus wants them to roll the stone away. And they're like, what? And yet he calls in a loud voice, come out. And, and Lazarus comes out. I love that picture, you know, of this, there's this hole in the, in, in the cave. And then you see a mummy come wrapping out. Literally the walking dead. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, we know that he couldn't see. He was stumbling because, because he, his head and his feet and his hands were really wrapped. So Jesus is like, take that stuff off him and let him go. Uh, it's an amazing miracle. But I want to focus in on this part before the miracle. Because this is so amazing to me, that, and it's, it kind of is hard to understand. In verse 35, Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Why was he deeply moved? Verse 33 and verse 38 says that he was deeply moved in spirit. One translator uh, translates this as uh, he gave way to such distress of spirit as to make his body tremble. And the classic Greek that's used for that, that word that's translated, he was moved in spirit, is, is of a horse, uh, and how a, a horse would snort. And so basically it means like it's coming up from inside him, this emotional response. Uh, why did he weep? Well, I think Jesus was willing to be emotionally vulnerable in this moment. And and there's part of this, especially for the guys, that doesn't make any logical sense. He's about to raise him from the dead. And just a little bit later, he knows the outcome, right? I've heard guys try to explain, why did Jesus weep? Well, maybe it's because right now, Lazarus is in paradise, and he's having a great time, and he's got to bring him back. Maybe that's why. I, I don't think so. Because it says in the text right there that he was moved by what was going on around him. The people were mourning and wailing. And it was traditional those first few days to just let go and just get it all out. And so th- the people would just mourn and wail. If you've ever, th- this is still true in Middle Eastern culture. Uh, I happened to be in, in, uh, in a place where a, a person was killed. A young man was killed on a jet ski on a, on a river uh, out in Laughlin, Nevada. And he was a Middle Eastern kid. He was, he was being wild and crazy. He ran into a boat. He died. He's lying there on the beach. And his parents come, and they just start screaming at the top of their lungs. They're throwing themselves on the ground. The guy, the, the, I'll never forget, the, the, the father is, is rolling around on the ground, covering himself in dirt, wailing and screaming. You know, that's the kind of environment Jesus was in, uh, was, was emotion. And it's amazing to me that Jesus allows himself in this moment to be emotionally vulnerable. And this is, this is huge because... Uh, To the Greeks, this is according to William Barclay, the commentator, uh, God had no emotion. I want to read you this, this quote. To any Greek reading this, and we must remember that the book of John was written for Greeks, this would be a staggering and incredible picture. John had written his whole gospel on the theme that in Jesus we see the mind of God, the logos of God. To the Greek, the primary characteristic of God was what he called apatheia, which means total inability to feel any emotion whatsoever. How did the Greeks come to attribute such a characteristic to God? They argued like this, if we can feel sorrow or joy, gladness or grief, it means that someone can have an effect upon us. Now if a person has an effect upon us, it must mean for the moment the person has power over us. No one can have any power over God, thus it must mean that God is essentially incapable of feeling any emotion whatsoever the Greeks believed in an isolated passionless and compassionless God and yet who do we see we see Jesus weeping in the moment caught up in the emotion I don't know about you but that makes me inspired I want to follow that kind of God the and the passionless non-emotional God that doesn't inspire me but the Jesus who connects with me and my hardship and my difficulty and my heartache even if he knows the answer is right around the corner even if he knows what's coming, he weeps. He joins us in our emotion. You know, uh, another kind of side thing is, is uh, people will sometimes debate over, okay, the Bible says Jesus wept, but it never says he laughed. Did he laugh? I, I mean, I, the, the way I feel about it is absolutely, his, his, probably his whole character was full of laughter, and so that's why it points out when he's weeping, because it's out of character. But, but I, Jesus, I mean, think about it logically. Jesus was known as a friend of sinners, of, of, of the party crowd. Basically, the, the religious people, that was their critique of Jesus. They called him a glutton and a drunkard, and he hangs out with the partiers. That's what they said about it. That was their critique. I don't think that's the type of person that is just somber all the time. Just <laughs> kind of looks, zone- you know, all the movies of Jesus, he's always just zoned out. <laughs> Blessed are those who (laughs) mourn, for they shall see God. (laughs) You know, it's just, really, I mean, who's like that? What tax collector would want to hang out with a guy like that? I mean, I think Jesus laughed hearty, and he laughed often. I mean, he he was at a wedding feast making wine for everybody. Uh, He used sarcasm. He says, you know what, you have a, a log sticking out of your eye, and your brother has a little speck in his eye, and you're like, oh, let me help you with your speck. Uh, You got a log in your own eye. That's a funny story. (laughs) You know, Jesus was funny, he laughed, and yet he, he was willing to be emotionally vulnerable. That encourages me. And it's amazing because even today, researchers are discovering that vulnerability is the key to connection. That vulnerability is the key to deep relationships. Uh, there's a, a researcher named Brene Brown that has one of the most popular TED Talks. If you know what TED Talks are, they're talks uh, about technology and education and, and, uh, and art, the arts. And, 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 and People who are really gifted in a certain area, who've written books in a certain area, or, they'll give a talk. And this is a 20-minute talk. I'm not, we're not going to watch all of it, but we're going to watch three minutes of it. But basically, to, to kind of give you the backstory, story, she, she was trying to determine what helps people cope with shame. And, and what she found is its connection... And so what helps people to make connections? And she's discovering the people that have the best relational connections She did all this research on those people, the people that ha- are deeply connected. They have really tight relationships, and she found some things out about them, and, uh, and what she found actually didn't, she didn't like. So I'm going to turn it over to Brené Browning.:
0: And I started looking at the data. In fact, I did it first in this very four, in a four-day very intensive data analysis where I went back, pulled these interviews, pulled the stories, pulled the incidents. What's the, what's the theme? What's the pattern? My husband left town with the kids um, <laughs> because I always go into this kind of Jackson Pollock crazy thing where I'm just like writing and, and going and kind of just in my researcher mode. And so here's what I found. What they had in common was a sense of courage. And I want to separate courage and bravery for you for a minute. Courage, the original definition of courage, when it first came into the English language, it's from the Latin word cur, meaning heart. And the original definition was to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. And so these folks had, very simply, the courage to be imperfect. They had the compassion to be kind to themselves first and then to others, because as it turns out, we can't practice compassion with other people if we can't treat ourselves kindly. And the last was they had connection, and this was the hard part, as a result of authenticity. They were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were, which is you have to absolutely do that for connection. The other thing that they had in common was this. They fully embraced vulnerability. They believed that what made them vulnerable made them beautiful. They didn't talk about vulnerability being comfortable, nor did they really talk about it being excruciating, as I had heard earlier in the shame interviewing. They just talked about it being necessary. They talked about the willingness to say I love you first. The willingness to do something where there are no guarantees. The willingness to breathe through waiting for the doctor to call after your mammogram. The willing to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out they thought this was fundamental. I personally thought it was betrayal. Um, I could not believe I had pledged allegiance to research. Where our job, you know, the definition of research is to control, control and predict, to study phenomenon for the, reason, for the ex- explicit reason to control and predict. And now my very, you know, my mission to control and predict had turned up the answer that the way to live is with vulnerability and to stop controlling and predicting. This led to a little breakdown.
1: Yeah, she, she goes on to kind of talk through, and she went for therapy herself. and You know, she kind of got into the whole thing because she wanted to control everything. She don't want to be vulnerable, and she gets this answer. She's like, I don't like this. And I can relate to that because I don't like to be vulnerable. Uh, I don't like to be, I mean, that's why I, I think that's part of why I got into doing art, And doing music, because it was a way for me to express my emotions without having to express it to a person. You know what I mean? Like, put my emotion into my art. I put my emotion into my music, and then now you can go listen to that without having to have, you know... But I like like it when it goes well, but I've been hurt, and and I'm afraid, and so I don't... You know, it's hard for me to be vulnerable. And and I feel like I've learned a lot about this from from Steve and Jackie, because I feel like Steve and Jackie are, are deeply emotional people. They have passionate emotions and yet they are so connected to people, and they just let themselves be vulnerable. And uh, we meet with Steve and Jackie for a Discipling Time every week, and, uh, you know, in the last five years they've been here, there, there have to be five or ten times where they've been in tears because of someone else's sin, somebody else's issue, somebody else's condition. And they just really care deeply about people. And that, that's really inspired me, and I want to be more like that. And, uh, but but why, do, why don't we get vulnerable? It's because we're afraid. It's because we're afraid of what will happen. It's because we're afraid of the troubles. It's because we're afraid of what, what, what bad things might happen. And the thing is that Jesus does not promise, is he does not promise that if you're a follower of him, good things will happen. Right. Yeah. And bad things won't happen. In fact, he promises the opposite. <laughs> you know, in John 16, he says, In this world you will have trouble. But he says, Take heart, I have overcome the world. He points to himself as the answer in the trouble. Earlier, he tells uh, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the answer. I am the one. I am the the way, the truth, and the life, he says in John 14. I have overcome the world. That should give us uh, the the strength to to be able to face whatever. And the one thing I want you to take away with, just one point for you to walk away with, that made it rhyme so you could remember it, and it's uh, let his tears conquer your fears let his tears conquer your fears the fact that he's vulnerable the fact that he was a relational person let that conquer the fears that we have because we're afraid to, to we're afraid that we're not going to be worthy enough so that's why we don't become christians you know i, I know a lot there's a lot among us who are kind of right there about to become christians i know there's several teens who are studying the bible there's others in the singles who are studying the Bible. You know, and you're afraid. You're afraid. Well, what if I fail? Right? That's the big question. What if I fail? Uh, the fact is, you will fail. <laughs> the fact is, you will have trouble. But Jesus says, I've overcome the world. Yeah. So that's all you need is that he's any... He, and not only has he overcome the world, but he cares about you. He cries with you in the hardship. I want to look at a, a verse that is one of those verses that... Uh, it's a great verse. It's one of those verses that, you know, you, you, you find in a little music box that opens up and it has this verse. It's a, it's a beautiful verse, but it means something that, it, it doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means. And that's Romans eight twenty eight, Because sometimes bad things are bad things. Romans eight twenty eight says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What people interpret this to mean a lot of times is, Okay, if you love God, it's all going to work out. It's all going to be good. Like, even if it seems really bad right now, it's actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing that this happened. That's not what this verse says. Sometimes bad things are bad things. And I read this uh, book uh, called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. And it it talks about all these different verses and how we misread them. And, And it talks about this verse. I just want to read this to you. It says, we reach... This application, the, the incorrect application, by misreading in two ways. First, we misunderstand all things. Without thinking, we turn God's works for good things together, God works all things together for good into all things are good. Clearly, this is not what the passage means. A few verses later, Paul indicates his audience is facing serious trials, including trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Romans 8:35. My dad read that verse a couple weeks ago. We can go through some difficult, horrible things as disciples. In Romans 8, 28, he is asserting that all things, good things, bad things, senseless things, the actions of good people or bad people, good governments or bad empires, are all tools in the hands of an active, caring God who's faithful to bring about His purposes. This verse never meant that everything that happens is a good thing. It doesn't mean that now. You know, Romans 8... If you read all the passage, it is about a suffering world. It's about a world of hardship. And Paul is saying, even in all these hardships that we face, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. That even when you go through hard things, even when you go through bad things, uh, you know, bad things do happen. Uh, I mean, Scott, Scott uh, dying at my age, that's a bad thing. You know, that... that That's, that's not a good, you know, death is a bad thing. That's why I think Jesus weeps because he's caught up. This is a bad thing that happened. And, and and so, you know, you can say, well, isn't everything the will of God? Yes. I don't understand God's sovereignty completely, but I know he gives people free will. And so if people have free will, like, let me read you what it says here. It says, we know bad things happen. The trouble is we have a hard time understanding why bad things happen. We often hear everything that happens is the will of God. We respond, do you always do the will of God? Do you? No. No, someone will grudgingly admit. Correct. One definition of sin is not doing the will of God. It is a gross misreading of Scripture to use this verse to try to turn a bad thing into a good thing by suggesting God causes all things to happen. God may bring good things from the ashes of bad things, but that is not the same thing. So the the, the promise is not that good things will only happen to you. The promise is that in good things and bad things, God will produce good. The overall product in your life is good things, even in the bad things. Even if you sin against me, God can use that to make me better. That's amazing. That gives you all power. Uh, I mean, that's like Obi-Wan Kenobi saying, if you strike me down, you'll only make me stronger. You know? (laughs) Uh, That was for you, Steve. Steve's counting down the days until it comes out. I mean, that's, that's, that's so inspiring that even in hard things, God can do good things. Timothy Keller says about this, uh, talks about this. He says, in other words, this is not a promise that God will protect us from harm or heartache. Rather, it is a promise that through the inevitable harm and heartache that come with being human, God can train us up in godliness. Yeah. The promise is not only good things will happen. The promise is not bad things are really good, you just have to see it. The promise is that even in spite of and through the bad things, they will work for good in the long run, taken in totality for those who love him. Not for everybody. You've got to choose to follow him. You've got to be with him, and then he'll work it all out. Those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I love this quote. Jesus Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer, but so that when you suffer, you would be more like him. Jesus Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer, but so when you suffer, you would be made more like him. And that's inspiring to me that Jesus is right there in the midst of it. And he's, he's willing to weep along with us. Even when he knows the outcome is gonna be good, he allows himself to be emotionally vulnerable. That's, that's amazing. And, and Brene Brown, in another uh, talk, the, the, the commentator that, the, that we just listened to, the researcher, she says, what keeps us from connecting is shame and fear. And the antidote to shame and fear is empathy. She says, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you take the same amount of shame and put it in a Petri dish over here and you douse it with empathy, it cannot survive. The two most powerful words when we're in struggle are me too. And isn't that who Jesus is? That's the whole definition of who Jesus is. Emmanuel, God with us, me too. I'm God, but I'm going bec- to come all the way down and become a little man. That's like me going, I'm going to become a little tortoise, only way smaller than that. You know, he, I'm going to come, me too, God says. That should give us courage. That should give us uh, the willingness to, to let his tears conquer our fears. There's one more uh, time where Jesus is recorded as weeping, and that's in Luke 19. In Luke 19, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, knowing what they're about to go through. And this is historical, what they did eventually go through. But it says in verse 41, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You know, what happened is in 70 AD, the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. The whole city was razed. A million people died uh, by the Romans coming in. You know what happened to the Christians? They, They left. Because Jesus told them, when you see the signs, you need to flee the city. Don't even go back and, you know, just, you get out of here. And so, historically, all the Christians left. They didn't face what all the Jews faced there in the city when the temple was destroyed. Because they they listened to Jesus. Uh, and, And Jesus here is weeping, knowing what they're going to go through, saying, you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. So Jesus weeps for us when we're in heartache and sorrow and trouble as his followers. He also weeps for us when we refuse to become his followers. When we go, no, 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 I know what I'm doing. That's what, they're, that's what he's weeping about right here, isn't it? You didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. How true is that of us? How, God works in our, in our lives in all these different ways, and yet we, sometimes we refuse to recognize. We don't want to hear it. A couple chapters earlier he says oh jerusalem jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her how often i wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her broad under her wings her brood under her wings but you would not have it jesus says i wanted to be close to you but you would not have it don't let that be you today don't refuse him anymore whatever he's been doing in your life however he's been working in your life god wants a relationship with you don't let him weep over you in this way because you... Uh, no, 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 no. Allow yourself to be vulnerable. Let his tears conquer your fears. Whatever you're afraid of, we're all afraid of. And so that's where in vulnerability we can help each other with those fears and we can be willing to, to do this together. It's time for you to surrender to him. Stop fighting and surrender to him. You can trust Jesus. He's always the answer. He's the resurrection and the life. He came to earth to say, Me too. You know, Hebrews says that he had loud cries and tears. It says he, he, he's able to empathize with us in our weakness, it says in Hebrews chapter 5. I'll give you the verse, you can read it on your own. Sorry, Hebrews 4. Hebrews 5, 7 talks about his loud cries and tears. Hebrews four fifteen says he's able to empathize with us in our weakness. He says, me too, I'm right here. I want to close with uh, something that happened this week and then uh, Julie's going to come and do another song for us called Jesus Wept that talks about this verse right here. But, you know, the, just the idea of being surrendered. You know, I was, uh, uh, Rigo Castillo passed away, and he was baptized in our ministry five years ago, and then he moved over to uh, the Latin ministry. And a number of us were at his funeral on, uh, on Thursday night, and it was such a powerful moment when his son was so vulnerable yeah. and, and shared. I went to him up to him afterwards, I said, I really appreciate you being vulnerable, because what he said was, you know, Rigo was always trying to get me to read the Bible. He was always trying to get me to, to listen to uh, Jesus' words. And, you know, he wanted to read every Sunday, just get together and read the Bible on Sunday mornings because uh, the, the Latin ministry meets at 4 in the afternoon. So Rigo would want to get together as a family and read the Bible on Sunday morning. He, he was like, I, I was always resistant to it. I don't know why I was so resistant to it. And he wrote him a letter saying, You know, I don't know why I resisted this, but I didn't know why, but now I do know why. And when Rigo was in the hospital, uh, you know, he, he, he died from brain cancer he was towards the end there he would go through he would be in pain and he would be uh hurting and and so his son started reading the bible to him and it would calm him down and he said that that he he started reading the bible to him it calmed Rigo down he went to sleep and then he said there i was four hours later still reading the bible and and he the 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 most powerful thing he said is he goes "Rigo, you were dad you were right you were right and, and, and uh, you know, I, I believe, you know, he's going to become a Christian. You know, I said, if you want somebody to get together and read the Bible with, I, I'm available. He said, oh, yeah, I would love that. And, uh, you know, he said, you were right, Dad. You were right. Uh, that's, that's surrender. Rego was such a surrendered soul. I got to be in some of his studies uh, studying the Bible. And, uh, you know, sometimes when somebody's studying the Bible, they wrestle. You know, you wrestle with God. You wrestle with what the Bible really says because it's against what we want sometimes. And we wrestle and we fight. And I was looking, okay, what's the fight with Rego? He just never did, right, Jerry? He was just surrendered from the beginning because he just loved God and, uh, and he's with God now. Uh, so to close, you were made for a connection. You were made for a connection with God. And so if, you have, if you've been fighting him, if you've been pushing him off, if you've been resistant, I really encourage you just to surrender to him, whatever that means for you. You know what it is. I don't know, but God knows. And you know. And, and surrender, make a decision, God, I'm going to surrender to you today. This is the day I'm surrendering. And a part of that is connecting with others. You know, in our ministry, we, we have small groups where this is the big group, and then we have small groups where we get together and read the Bible. And we'd love for you to connect to one of our small groups. So ask somebody here, what's this about small groups? And get connected to a small group, because that will really help you to take that next step and make it a priority to, to have that connection, have that vulnerability. Let Jesus' tears conquer your fears. Amen.